The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to April's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we discuss CES and the Bristol Show. We look at 3D Universal Glasses. We also take a look at the Panasonic DT30 and GT30 3D TVs. Russell gives us a review of the Acoustic Energy Radiance 5.1 and the Subsat systems. We also discuss ISF and THX calibration courses and the new Kalman 4.2 calibration software. And finally, we discuss 3D projection. And joining me for this month's podcast, uh, we got Russell, we got Stephen, and we got Mark. Good evening, guys. Evening, Good evening. Good evening, Phil. And uh, this is uh, about the fourth attempt at this month's podcast, so apologies uh, that it hasn't happened sooner. We have had technical glitches, uh, but we've managed to get around them. And we haven't been around this year so far, so again, apologies for that. Things have just been extremely busy with CES, Bristol Show, uh, lots of product launches and so on. We've just never had the time to all get together, but... Here we are, and uh, we're going to cover the last three months uh, as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, obviously, starting with CES, uh, Steve came out with me this year to Vegas. And uh, I guess, Steve, the numbers were up in terms of uh, those that attended the show, but in terms of technology, somewhat lacking. Yeah, that's true, Phil. I mean, obviously, it was my first show, so I wasn't, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, and I think 150,000 people over the three days is quite impressive. But in terms of technology itself, yeah, it was very much just uh, refinements of last year's technology. So we had 3D, of course, lots of 3D, um, bigger screens. That was very popular. And, and of course, smart TV or, or internet TV, which seemed to be the three major areas for display manufacturers, at least. It, we all knew it was going to be the uh, tablet show uh, after the iPad success of last year. Uh, and quite interesting to see that even the big names like Panasonic were getting involved in that segment of the market. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they had their Viera tablet, which which is kind of a, a cross between, I think, a sort of a, a, a control and and a tablet. Um, it was only at, um, at, at the sort of development stage. It wasn't actually for, for, for launch yet, but uh, certainly very interesting, and it had some interesting technology attached to it. I'm not personally convinced by it, but uh, but it was, uh, yeah, obviously there was, everyone was pushing out tablets there, Samsung, uh, Toshiba, um, and, and Panasonic, among the name but three. And yeah, I mean, clearly, I remember when when the iPad came out, I was thinking it just looks like a giant eye touch to me. But uh, once again, Apple approved me wrong, and uh, now everyone's making them. Really, nothing in major terms. I mean, we were really hoping to see uh, the first big screen OLEDs, and uh, disappointingly, it was only LG that that were showing anything of of any great size. And and again, we'd seen that earlier last year in Berlin. Yeah, exactly, Phil. Um, 31-inch OLED, which we saw in Berlin, was on display again. It looked great, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's unfortunate that A, only LG seemed to be doing it uh, at the moment, and B, that we're still waiting for that, you know, mythical 50-inch OLED to come along. Although, talking to them, we got the impression it may not be too far away, so fingers crossed there. Otherwise, at the show, to be honest, um, saw some 3D projectors. My first chance to take a look at some of JVCs was was at the uh, at CES, uh, and that was impressive. And I was also quite impressed by JVC's uh, 21 to 9 um, passive 3D TV, which, which, which actually looked quite impressive. Um, and I didn't know it existed until we saw it at CES. So unfortunately, as far as I can tell, it won't be released in the UK. 
But uh, it was certainly an interesting TV series, and also interesting that they were calling it uh, Cinema 3D in the same way that LG were launching their passive, or was they were calling it Cinema 3D um, technology in, in, in at CES. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, that screen we've had it confirmed by JVC UK, it's not going to be released over here, which is sad given that it looked uh, rather good. It did. It was quite impressive, actually. It was uh, certainly far better than the uh, 21 to 9 Philips display that, that I saw at Bristol, which was shockingly bad. Um, artifacts everywhere, very processed image. Uh, even when I turned it off, it still looked uh, video-like. Uh, I was quite shocked at that, to be honest. So uh, you mentioned Bristol there. Let's go over to Russell. Russell, uh, Bristol show, it's uh, it's more hi-fi than home cinema. You went along this year along with Steve. Um, what did you think of the show? Um, it was... Uh pretty much like Bristol last year to be perfectly honest there wasn't a lot new on display there either but then that the hi-fi world tends to be a little bit more evolutionary than than revolutionary um there were some interesting new products on display um rel had their new uh, line of american designed and built subwoofers there uh, sporting all new american drivers and a lot lot more power than you've probably seen in a rel before certainly in a more compact box um they were making some reasonably nice sounds um kef were there as well um having built a completely new uniq driver they've been a little bit quiet in the uk market in the last year or so mainly because they've been concentrating on the new technology in both that speaker and the rather um, rather impressive little um t series flat on or near wall um satellite speakers that are presumably going to take over or at least augment their ranges like the the, the popular kef eggs Etc. So um, they were sounding very, very impressive indeed for something only what thirty millimeters thick, with conventional drivers. Quite remarkable. Given the the industry at the moment, and given the uh, the economy, uh, was there uh, still a mix of high end uh, esoteric uh, equipment there, or uh, was it more your budget bookshelf type ranges of uh, amplification and speakers and so on? No, it was, a, it was a pretty good mix, actually. I mean, the high, the high end tends to survive almost regardless of what the market's doing, I suppose, because like, like with a lot of high end products, the sort of people who buy it aren't necessarily affected by a recession. And maybe the sort of the more mid range to budget products are where, you know, when money gets tight, is the next thing you don't buy is a pair of another another pair of speakers, etc. So, um, and a, and a lot of the a lot. I mean, there's there's a lot of high end gear on display. A lot of it actually being used by other manufacturers to demonstrate their own. Uh, their own kit, you know. Um, if you look at the sort of the JM Lab focal speakers and or the Utopia range, um, you tend to see them everywhere at some of the hi-fi shows. But there's, uh, you know, seldom do you actually see um, see them being demoed by JM Lab themselves at them. So they sort of get in by the back door if you like. So a lot of the high-end stuff. No, you you said though that uh, the audio world, I mean, it, it doesn't move that quickly uh, compared to things like displays, which change every six months or so. But uh, was there anything there that you thought, yep, yeah, that's a, a good sign of where the market's going in the future? No, no, no nothing spectacularly different at all. It's a, it's <clears throat> there are different technologies out there in loudspeakers, but they tend to be a little, either rather expensive or uh, to to produce, uh, making them you know low volume. You, know, you don't tend to see a lot of the sort of the weird and wonderful technologies trickle down. At the end of the day, the old good old two way um, you know, book, bookshelf or even slimline floor stander is, is pretty much what people expect to see, and it's what they're prepared to buy, and it's cheap to make. So I don't see any particular revolution happening in that regard, unless, you know, again, with someone like Kef, who brought out a significantly thinner driver, changes the shape of the speaker, it still works the same way. People tend to be moving towards the, the less is more uh, when it comes to furnishing their houses these days. And, of course, loudspeakers just get in the way. So 
do you see that market as one that's going to develop uh, over the next 12 months? I mean, Kef have brought something out. Are other manufacturers doing the same type of thing? I think if they see it um, <clears throat> selling in numbers, and, and, and it will based on purely on its sound quality alone, and I think everybody will jump on the bandwagon, be it on, um, I mean, in walls have tended to be a little bit less successful for obvious reasons. You've got to knock, knock holes in your house, and this is the next best thing, you know. Um, the, these are speakers that even embarrass some of the skinnier plasmas out there. They're so thin. Um, so, yeah, I can't, I can't see why not at all. And of course, uh, Steve, you went along to uh, the Bristol show, possibly from a different uh, viewpoint than Russell. So how was the show for you this year? Well, I mean, aside from Philips, who I previously mentioned, um, the majority, well, the, all the major TV manufacturers weren't really there, um, except Sony's projector division, who were there showing their, their new 3D projector, which, which you reviewed quite recently, Phil, and which I have to say was very disappointing. Incredibly dim image, even though they were using quite a bright piece of materials from the beginning of Cloudy with a Chance of Meeples. Uh, very bright scene, and it still looked very dim. Um, so that was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, JVC were there, of course. Uh, they were displaying the X3, which, which, which looked great. Uh, and, in, and in fact, I, I bought one recently. And, um, and Sim, of course, were there with their double-stacked 3D system. Uh, which looked very impressive, but uh, obviously it's £60,000. So, you know, I mean, you get what you pay for, I guess. Uh, and for me, the most interesting thing that I saw was was uh, Optoma, who had their um, 3D adapter, uh, which was at 720p. But it, it did actually look very good, and I was quite impressed with it. Uh, really, really quite impressed. And I'd be quite keen to get my hands on one and, and review it, because uh, it was, I didn't know it was there at the show. And, and uh, it did, uh, it, it, my friends that were with me were both very impressed as well. Speaks uh, uh, the Bristol show speaking as the sort of pretty much the sort of more of a video file layman. I, I need a picture of me speakers and I do enjoy it. But it, is anybody ever going to design a pair of 3D glasses that are any good? Every well, pair interestingly, I've... Russell, I've just reviewed um, the Expand Universal 3D glasses, uh, which which did work. They actually uh, actually Expand make them for JVC. So they were in fact identical almost to the ones I was used to for my X3. But obviously the difference is that the expand ones, you can set up, it's a button you can use to set it for different uh, manufacturers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I tested it out with, with Sony, um, Panasonic, LG, Samsung, and JVC. And uh, it worked with all of them. And they're, they're quite well designed, they're quite robust. They're nice large lenses. Um, you know, they block out ambient light to a certain degree. And uh, about ninety-nine pounds, and in fact, uh, I was quite impressed with those. And they what they they, they managed to reduce that. Well, what I found with a lot of pairs I've tried on, and again, speakers are labour. You all seem to get reflections inside the glasses, which actually seem to distract from looking at the picture, and always leave you even that the glasses are relatively comfortable, leave you away. You're actually wearing something on the end of your nose for hours yeah, at yeah, a time. Do they avoid that? They they have. I mean, they're quite large glasses, which means a they fit comfortably over. If you wear regular glasses, they fit over those. <clears throat> As you point out, they they help block out ambient light. I mean, Panasonic's original 3D glasses were absolutely disastrous from that point of view because they had no size to them, so they just let in loads of ambient light and ruined the 3D effect. And and because they're quite large, they also have quite large lenses, which particularly when you're looking at a projector screen, you know, it, it improves your field of view. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that some manufacturers' glasses, the lenses are just too small, especially if you're trying to wear them over glasses as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, th I think they're, they're quite impressive. I mean, I always liked the ones that came with the JVC, and I didn't realise until I got the expander glasses to review that they were almost identical, made by the same people. Uh, and up to that point, they'd already been my favourite glasses anyway. So uh, I'd, I'd strongly recommend them to anyone who's thinking of buying an additional pair or if they bought a 3D display that doesn't come with any glasses. 
um, they're certainly worth investigating. And £99, it's about the same kind of price range as a lot of other glasses. But obviously, you get the universal aspect, which is which is very useful. Now, Russell, you being uh, more of an audiophile than a videophile, uh, what did you honestly think of 3D now that you've seen it? Well, I'd, I'd experienced it before in the cinema, and I found it uh, as, as, as an effect to be highly variable depending upon the film you're watching. And I think that the few video demonstrations I've seen uh, have, have encapsulated much the same range of experience. Um, I, I personally find watching it on virtually any sort of plasma um, virtually pointless because I find unless you can actually feel fill your field of vision, as soon as an image hits the side of the screen, the whole effect just flattens and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really hold up. Um, I mean, also at the show, Sim 2 had their jewels stacked, and I'll have to let one of the experts jump in as to what they are, but I think it was about 65Ks worth of projector. Um, I found that very impressive, although sadly let down by possibly the worst glasses I've ever worn. And I don't think I found it hard to distinguish actually between the ones that are production and the ones that were pretty much sort of like prototype pairs. But that was to look at. Um, quite, quite a stunning, uh, a stunning demo. It felt quite comfortable glasses, to look at. Sorry, it's interesting you mentioned the glasses because uh, they were the ones that I was wearing at the sim demo. Were almost like welder glasses. They were very large. That's the one with actually, the two little square lenses inside them. But they blocked out all the ambient light. I mean, that's one of the things you were complaining about. And they they were designed to literally cut out any any ambient light from the sides. Um, and whilst yes, they looked ridiculous and they were quite big. <laughs> Um, you look like one of the minions in in, in Despicable Me wearing them. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Genuinely, um, but but I mean they worked, and the 3D was superb. But as you say, it, it comes at a cost. I guess uh, the main problem for 3D, and uh, you know, I was sitting next to an executive from a, a very big um, CE company recently having dinner, and uh, he quite openly admitted that you know. 3D has basically fallen uh, flat in its face in terms of sales. Uh, do you think it, public apathy is, is possibly going to kill the format before it even takes off? I think it's going to struggle because of public apathy. I mean, ultimately, I think the case will be that manufacturers will include 3D you know, as a matter of course, whether you want it or not, uh, in the same way that now you, you, know, you can only buy, well, you can, most TVs are at least seven, you know, HD ready, if not for 1080p. Um, in the same way, within two or three years' time, every TV you buy will be 3D capable. Whether whether you actually want 3D is another issue entirely. But I will admit, with, uh, I agree with Russell to a certain extent that um, I mean I've reviewed about 10 3D TVs, uh, and I was largely apathetic towards it because, as Russell says, unless it's filling your field of view, you just don't get immersed in in, in the movie uh, the way you would at the cinema, for example. And it wasn't until I I reviewed the JVC X3 that I finally you know had a, a big screen. 3D at home, and then I became a massive fan, and I've been you know, buying up 3D movies wherever I can, including, unfortunately, eBay, because of ridiculous things like exclusive deals for certain films with certain manufacturers, which I don't think is helping um, 3D's um, chances by you know, things like Avatar being only available if you buy a, J um, a Panasonic product. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, there is a certain degree of apathy from, from the general public. And I don't think the manufacturers necessarily helping themselves by making certain movies exclusive. No, we haven't heard from uh, Mark yet, but Mark, you've had possibly uh, one of the smaller screens uh, available, and it was an LCD, and it happened to be from Panasonic. So, uh, what what were your thoughts initially on on 3D, and uh, and then maybe on the on the TV? On the 3D itself, Phil. I mean, as you've been saying, you really need the size to uh, to make it work. The 37 inches, you really have to sit up close to get 
any of your field division filled uh, and make it a comfortable experience at the same time. Um, the television itself was was a nice one for 2D, but the overriding feeling was it's a lot of money for a for a very small 3D set. So, uh, Mark, uh, you've had a look at the DT30. It's Panasonic's first uh, LCD 3D TV. So what were your, your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first off, Phil, it, it was a great little performer um, for 2D. 3D, I found a little bit of a problem with the size um, and having to get so close to fill your field of vision, as we've been saying. Um, the IPS Alpha panel was very interesting, and the re- resolution performance was uh, was good in motion. Um, blacks were improved from previous IPS Alphas, even if they didn't really match up to some of the uh, competition from Samsung, Sony, etc. Um, the design... That really hit me for Panasonic. They've, they've really thought about it this year and, and made a really classy-looking, well-engineered piece. Nice, ra- very uh, subtle, rounded finishes. Not really very many weak areas, to be honest. The um, viewing angles were excellent. It was good for gaming. The 3D was was clear enough, but the overriding problem, as I say, was was the size. So I found it probably a little bit expensive for what would be primarily a 2D set for most people. Now, uh, the interesting thing here is that it's an IPS alpha panel. Uh, it's doing 3D. L- LCD's never been great um, for 3D because of the response time. So have Panasonic cracked it with, with the DT30? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Real lack of crosstalk when I've compared to some of the, the other LCDs I've seen. Um, very clean. Um, you know, not quite pleasant to watch, but just got to get too close. And sticking with uh, Panasonic and uh, the GT30 from uh, Panasonic, it's their uh, mid-range 3D TV. Steve's had it for a few days now, so uh, how's it performed? Overall, Phil, it's 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 a very good display. It performs very well. Um, it's nice to see that clearly Panasonic have been listening to us in terms of some of the feedback from our reviews because things like the menu system has been updated with uh, some picture functions that were hidden away in the setup menu and now where they should be in the picture menu. Um, also, when you're doing calibration, no longer are the um, some some of the slide sliding scales were actually in the middle of the frame, in the middle of the, of the display, which obviously is where your meter's reading, which used to make, make actual measurements very difficult. They've now fixed that. They've also put uh, numbers on the sliding scales um, in professional mode, which is another thing that we complained about. So, so that's good to see. Um, They've um, moved the, well, the, the inputs instead of facing out and out on the side, which is unfortunate because they're actually too close to the edge, which means if you've got a fairly chunky uh, HDMI cable, it's basically poking out the side of the, uh, of the display, which is unfortunate. I should have either put them at the bottom or moved it further in. Um, they've also redesigned the look of them, which, and it looks quite nice, but they've done a strange thing. They've taken, instead of having maybe a silver edge on the outside of the bezel, there's a silver edge on the inside of the bezel next to where the actual panel is, uh, which I find very off-putting. One of the things I really like about watching, say, 2.35 to 1 films on the Kuro is that sometimes you can't even tell where the black bar on the movie and the actual bezel of the Kuro starts. Where here, you've got this clear silver trimming, which I think uh, I personally don't particularly like. Um, in terms of performance, uh, with 3D, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I have to say that I think of all the manufacturers, Panasonic are probably making the best 3D displays at the moment. It has the new Panasonic glass. Well, it doesn't come with glasses, sorry. 
but um, the, the review set came with two pairs of, of Panasonic's new design glasses, which obviously fix the problem of the older glasses, whereas they, you know, they now block out the light from the sides better, which is a good thing. Although I still think the lenses are a bit too small, especially compared, compared to the Expand glasses I tested recently. Now, obviously, the big question is, does it start a problem with 50 hertz? And the answer to that question is yes. I put on a bit of football that I've got on my PVR, and I could immediately see it on the, on the, on the center line as soon as the camera panned across. Um, so, you know, I guess that uh, everyone wants to know if that was the case when we were at that convention a few last month. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the answer is yes, it is. Um, and I'm surprised that uh, more people aren't making an issue out of it, really, uh, in, in other reviews that I've read. No, there, there seems to be some confusion um, about the 50 hertz issue, Steve. I mean, we went into it in great detail on the VT2065 inch review, which you carried out. Um, we ran all sorts of zone plate uh, test patterns from your MP500 Sencor uh, generator. Yeah, I did. Yeah, at, at different refresh rates, I did it at 50 hertz, 60 hertz, and uh, 24p. And it was only visible with 50 hertz material. So it's definitely connected to 50 hertz. It's, it's, it's not, I mean, obviously, we, we know you, there are other artifacts that the, all plasmas suffer from, and which you might see with other material at 24p or at, or at 60 hertz. But this is a problem specific to um to 50 hertz and the best way to describe it is with with fast movement in across the frame or with fast camera pans you'll see the edges of images begin to break up into the you know the constituent red blue and green colors um it, it sometimes looks almost like ghosting and also you quite often see it when people are moving around within their faces that are um you know the contours of their cheeks that sort of stuff will start to break up um, but it's particularly noticeable with football because obviously the camera is constantly panning backwards and forwards across the pitch. And every time you look at the centre line or even the players themselves, you'll see this this blue, red and green uh, ghosting around them. Um, and it's very noticeable. Now, there are ways, if you turn on the IFC, that does diminish the effect. But obviously, then you create that, you know, that kind of video look that we so despise. Um, ultimately, my interpretation, and, and you can chip in when you want, Phil, is that... Uh, you know, the TVs uh, have been um, optimized for 60 hertz. Uh, and ultimately, that means that we suffer slightly here in Europe where we use 50 hertz. Uh, I mean, basically, we were, t we were told that we won't <laughs> divulge who our sources are. But basically, we were told, well, you know, the biggest markets are, are the US and Japan. So make of that what you will, which says to me that the the panels uh, and, and the driving behind the panels are are for the 60 hertz market. Steve, sometimes it, it's it's almost like uh, old compression uh, artifacts round about players, especially with football, in HD football. It, it's something I notice on the VT20 on a regular basis. You know, you get that fast camera pan and all of a sudden it, motion resolution of the screen seems to suffer because it just it just becomes a blur. It becomes a, a, almost a ghost. And, and Mark, you pointed out one which you'd noticed on your G20 uh, and I have to say, I went and watched the the, the TV program just to see what you were talking about, and that was live at the Apollo. When you get oh, the yeah. the lights that come down uh, behind the comedian, and the camera's moving backwards and forwards, it's there as well. The pictures it, it breaks it's, up. Well, it's clear as day. Well, absolutely the opposite of clear as day, but it's very easy to spot there. You can, the, the lights just completely blur. Yeah. Now, I, I guess as as reviewers, we tend to pick up on little inconsistencies and little artifacts and 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 that kind of thing when we look at displays because we're looking at them so often and so on. And I guess Steve, you know, nine times out of ten, maybe the uh, the enthusiast might see it, but the the more general 
punter who's looking at the screen probably doesn't pick up on you know the type of artifacts that we sometimes mention like force scaling or, or um, force sharpness and that kind of thing but this 50 hertz issue it's very very easy to see yeah absolutely phil i mean there are there are you're right absolutely right there are sometimes small things we pick up on that the average person would never even notice but i think this is something that uh, that you know anybody watching a football game is going to spot this pretty quickly unless it's on a very small maybe you've got a 42 inch it might not be so obvious but certainly 50 inch and above um, and especially on the 65 inch that i reviewed last year uh, i mean there it was incredibly obvious all the time on not just on football then i mean on everything it just stood out um you know and, and once you notice it, it it can become quite annoying now i, I guess ultimately it's, it's some people may not will notice it some people won't notice it, some people won't care uh, and i guess that, well as we always say with our reviews you know ultimately the best thing to do is go and have a look at uh, whatever the tv says so a gt30 go and demo it for yourself with some football ideally but any 50 hertz material and make sure you're happy with it before you make the purchase because um, otherwise it's a very solid display um you know as i said the 3d is fantastic um with blu-rays it looks amazing um great for gaming um, you know it's a very solid display um just unfortunately it's been optimized for 60 hertz yeah uh, and we're not <laughs> yeah um, and, and most people are going to be using 50 hertz for, for the majority of the viewing it's generally well yeah and for tv and for dvds it's 50 hertz i mean obviously yeah. with blu-rays you're 24p um games can vary my ps3 outputs to 60 hertz but uh um certainly for tv and, and dvds you're at 50 hertz have you noticed problems with 30 frames per second games on the gt30 a doubling of much. the image is similar it's similar it's a similar effect to um to the 50 hertz but it, it doubles the image on a on a native 30 frames per second game, even if it's outputting at 60 hertz. It's quite similar. Right. I mean, the only game I've been playing so far was Super Stardust, which I was playing last night, that's, which that's is a 3D game. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's great fun. I was on it for hours, actually. And I guess, uh, I mean, what we have to point out here, uh, you know, some people might say, well, it's just the broadcast material you're watching, guys. That's the... That's the problem. It's it's low compression, uh, even HD signals that you're watching. Um, but we have the technology there, Steve, with the MP500, where uh, we can actually dial in every single refresh rate and have moving zone plates and uh, put movement onto the screen. So it, it's it's visible there. It's visible with uh, DVD. It's visible with um, broadcast TV. So it's definitely a, a panel driving issue. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. Um, as, as, as you mentioned, I mean, we, we, I've put the put the displays through their paces at multiple refresh rates using moving zone plates. We even we even um, used our K10s to check at what refresh rate it was displaying at. Um, so there's no question that this is an issue with 50 hertz and um, and only 50 hertz. And um, well, as I said, you know, ultimately it's down to the consumer's choice. Um, uh, it's unfortunate that it's there because otherwise, as I said, it's it, they're very solid displays. Um, it'll be interesting, uh, you know, to see what you think of the VT30 when you when you get a chance to review it. And that will be coming, uh, uh, we think, second or third week in April. So um, stick around for that. But as always, Steve, I mean, we we are pretty f- thorough with our reviews. And uh, when I said we mentioned little artifacts here and there, that's just for completeness. But uh, this has been a big issue on the forums markets. Uh, certainly, you came to the team um, as a forum member first of all, and. Uh, uh, before we had you trained up and so on, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But uh, you purchased your Panasonic TV, and I understand you were quite disappointed once you saw the issue and then the response that initially came from the company. 
Yeah, there was a, there kind of a real denial about it, really. The, the usual customer services, blah. I think the advice was turn IFC on, but of course that brought its own problems and didn't really solve it totally. Um, yeah, a very frustrating experience, really. The Panasonic, it, it can look so good, but it's really let down by by a couple of major flaws. The 50 hertz bug, and and with um, certainly with the G20, with the floating black issue, was where you would get. If, if you're in, a, in mostly in dark scenes, um, if there's a sudden illumination on it, the whole um, contrast of the screen rises up in stages and back down and up again, and it can be yeah. extremely distracting for um, for movie watching in particular. So it's it's like an APL overdrive, isn't it? It changes yeah. from one scene to another, and the whole the whole image rises. Yeah, it's it's just it's just over aggressively implemented, and it's something I hope they fix for this year at least. Well, best person to ask is Steve. On the GT30, I think I saw that actually. Um, actually, Mark, uh, I had a really? DVD on, and when they were moving from dark scene to another uh, to a brighter scene, suddenly the whole brightness of the entire image would change. Yeah, that's very briefly. One. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I um I noticed that uh, on the GT30. So unfortunately, I still think that's a problem. Now, uh, one thing we don't want to do here is is uh, come across as if we're beating Panasonic down with a big hammer at the moment. We're certainly not doing that. And uh, basically, at the end of the day, I mean, these are the types of things that enthusiasts are going to pick up on. The mass market are probably never going to notice um, these things that we're talking about, Steve and Mark. But um, I guess the important thing here is, though, that if the enthusiast market are noticing it, obviously we can feed that back in and perhaps get Panasonic to ch- change the, the way things work or even just look at the the issue and acknowledge it. Absolutely, Phil. I mean, you know, as I said earlier on, they have been listening to us and they have made changes to the 2011 models based upon our feedback on the 2010 models and, and even before that. For example, um, up until now, Panasonic's haven't been able to detect uh, 3 to 2 and 2 to 2 cadence, whereas... Um, I believe when you did the DT30 mark, it was detecting three to two. Yeah, it was detecting three to two. And the no same when I reviewed the when I reviewed the professional Panasonic display, the VX200, that also detected three two, which was the first time I'd seen a Panasonic display detect any cadence. So, as I say, that they are listening to us and they are improving things based upon feedback from us. Um, and, and we do feedback when we when we see problems. Uh, obviously, it takes time. There's a, as you know, there's a, there's a development phase for anything. But hopefully, event you know, with, with feedback from us and from other reviewers, the, uh, Panasonic ultimately will address things like floating blacks and 50 hertz. But by um, judging by Phil's visit to uh, Japan, it doesn't seem that the um, 50 hertz bug had been relayed properly from from this side uh, over to Japan. So it was probably a bit too late to get the uh, fixes in for for this year. Well, that that might be the case, and and let me just quickly explain that for listeners who haven't followed the blog or or the article from Japan. Uh, basically, uh, it was almost like a United Nations conference uh, on the last day of our trip there to Japan. And it was basically a, an opportunity for all the, the European journalists there to ask uh, questions. And, and Panasonic were open, honest, and uh, completely uh, answered every question that was asked of them. And obviously, I raised the 50 hertz issue. They set up an impromptu demonstration with a VT30 and a G20 showing uh, a loop of an England game, which was terrible in terms of compression. It was from a a USB key that that this file was being played back from. Uh, And initially, uh, IFC was turned on and we were told, look at the ball, look how smooth the ball's now moving and so on. And I could see straight away that the 50 hertz issue was there and nobody, not even engineers, 
were pointing to that issue. Um, so, you know, politely, I moved to one side and spoke to one of the engineers and one of the German technical guys uh, who was on the trip from Panasonic, uh, pointed out the issue. We switched IFC off. We uh, looked at this loop over and over and over again. Uh, this engineer went away, spoke to other engineers in Japanese, came back again and said that we're going to investigate the issue, which going on that experience says to me that, that whatever's been fed back hasn't quite uh, been fed back. It's been lost probably in translation somewhere. Um, but now we know, certainly from our point of view, that they know what the issue is now and perhaps uh, it is fixable. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, ultimately what the driving technology of the panel is uh, apart from what they're prepared to tell us and uh, we don't know if that's a firmware or hardware issue they could really do with it uh, before the vt30 arrives well from from what we've seen of the vt30 and not take this too far off off, off subject um that's the next reference tv if it hasn't got those issues on on there it is as far as what i've seen so far that that's a very very possible reference level screen, uh, and for a consumer display at that price point, that'd be fantastic. But we'll have this issue. It's the last one to come to market, so we'll just have to wait and see. I think. Indeed. Yeah, Phil. Um, as you say, I don't want this to sound like we're bashing Panasonic because because overall the GT30 is a fantastic display. It's very capable. Has a lovely image. Um, it's got THX for both 2D and 3D, ISF controls. They've introduced uh, a revised CMS, which actually controls luminance, uh, color, and hue now, which is another thing we've been talking about with them. So once again, they've been listening to feedback. So, so yeah, it's, it is a very good display, and it is good to see that the Panasonic have been listening to feedback and making improvements where they can. Um, so so overall, I'm quite impressed with it. As I say, it's just this one little thing that, that's that's unfortunately still there. I know people are going to ask about it, which is why we mention it. But uh, don't let that you know, take away from the fact that it is overall a, you know, a very impressive display. Very well built as well, and that lovely build quality. And I do like the new design apart from that edging on the inside of the bezel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see uh, when it when it launches. I don't think it's launched yet, but when it does launch, how good uh, Panasonic's new Viera Connect is, which is their revised version of Viera Cast. I mean, obviously, Steve, uh uh, there's at least two of us here who have uh, 2010 Panasonic models. Uh, Mark, you've got the the G20, and I've got the VT20. And I have to say, even though it has those little niggles there, and uh, uh, one thing I will point out for people: don't get confused against posturization and this 50 hertz issue. They're two separate things. Panasonic TVs have always had posturization at some degree or another, uh, just because of the dithering algorithms that they use. Uh, in the panels, so don't mix those two up. Uh, but having said that, Mark, I mean, I, I'm living quite happily with the VT20, even though I know it's got those little niggles there, and from time to time it uh, it raises its head and you think, oh, Jesus, I just wish that wasn't there. Uh, but for the majority of you, and um, certainly normal TV and so on, uh, they're good quality displays at the end of the day. Yeah, it gives a really a really lovely image. Um, colours are great now, now the calibration controls are fully installed in the THX presets there. Um, decent black levels, a decent filter even for the 2010 sets, and I know that's been improved this year. Um, yeah, the majority of the time, it's a really nice television to watch. It's just that the bugs, when they hit, are very annoying. Yeah, and uh, got to point this out that 
you know, there's no perfect TV out there, is there, guys? So uh, you've got to uh, take the rough with the smooth, but hopefully, uh, obviously, after our reviews, you will be armed as a consumer, as an enthusiast to go out there, and at least you'll know some of the things that we found that you can go and look for, and if you can't see them, then great. Um, just make sure that the TV's right for you and that you see it yourself and don't go blind, blind blindly because if you're spending two grand on a TV and you haven't actually seen it, uh, there's only one person to blame there, Steve, isn't there? Yeah, quite. There's a caveat M2, I think, in that case. <laughs> uh, so let's move on a little bit from displays. Uh, we're going to go back to Russell for our little f- audio fix here. And uh, Russell, uh, the first review we're going to look at is one that you did uh, a few weeks back now uh, Subsat System, Active System got to say I, I paid great attention uh, to this review because I, I am a fan of Active Technology so tell us a bit more um, Yes, um, uh, a few weeks ago I had the pleasure of playing with Acoustic Energy's um, Subsat, uh, Pro Subsat System, sorry I've got to put the Pro on the front uh, on the front of that. It is, after all, device, derived from uh, a studio product, and that's probably actually its natural home. Um, very compact little two-way monitors, um, uh, you know, fit in the palm of your hand. Compact, um, contained within that tiny cabinet is not only the usual two drivers, the Acoustic Energy metal cone and a, and a Viva uh, XT25 ring radiator tweeter, um, but two amplifiers and an electronic crossover. Uh, the amplifiers, as I remember rightly from having a quick peek, were uh, B&O Ice Power modules. Um, which seem to curry favour with the uh, people who are into their digital, as they call it, amplification. Um, excellent, excellent sound for the size of box. Uh, you, you really did wonder if you were hiding larger speakers behind them. Um, uh, the, the effortless control and, and a very, very clean um, mid and treble, um, the active crossovers allowing much better control over the integration between the drive units. Um, and uh, quite a remarkable little package. So, Russell, uh, a couple of things. I mean, if it's come from a pro background, I know that, that it's probably going to be a, a pig, ugly, <laughs> pig ugly speaker to look at. There won't be any grills. Uh, but I guess the positive side is that the amplification that's on board is actually designed for the drivers, which is uh, one of the biggest points that people just forget about when you think about uh, active speakers. Yeah, it's, it, it's, one of those, it's one of those things. I don't know why people think you can possibly achieve a better match than the amplifier designed specifically for that drive unit and and somehow you might randomly pick a couple of components off the shelf from different manufacturers and arrive at the same magical mix um and there's a chance that can happen but it doesn't happen that often unless they're designed with each other in mind and and just to go back there i mean i actually didn't think they were that ugly I actually thought because they were quite small and cute, they're certainly no real uglier than sort of a lot of the, what passed for these little tiny, um, you know, micro satellites in all metal weird shaped cases and the like. A, a grill would be handy, as would another colour other than black, um, but they they can sit there quite discreetly. Um, I suppose the, the one problem they do have in a domestic setting is, of course, not only can do you, you, not only do you have to get the signal cable to them, which is necessarily thicker than your average speaker cable, you've also got to get a power cable to them as well. Which, unless you've, you've had a bit with a bit of forethought, spread your sockets around the room, can leave a lot of long power leads trailing. Um, that might be a that might be an, a, an impediment to domestic bliss, shall we say? But I was lucky enough in my room that both with the sockets I had there and the ones the previous people had left, they actually went in quite tidily. Now, Russell, I'm a, a big advocate of, of 
active speakers haven't owned a set for eight years and never really found the need to uh, replace them until the amplifiers started to uh, play up in, inside them, uh, which, you know, after eight, eight years use and abuse, which they do get in a review room, um, I was certainly so taken with the with the sound quality that I never felt the need to uh, upgrade to a separate amplifier and speaker system until recently. Yeah, and I think you might you might have hit on one of the reasons why you perhaps don't see these being quite as popular um, with, with dealers outside of the pro audio world, where they're pretty much accepted as the norm. Um, your average dealer takes one look at that and sees a five hundred pound loudspeaker that they can't sell an amplifier with. Maybe a processor, but there's no there's no upgrade path. Um, I mean, there is because of course you can just sell the whole speaker complete and buy another one. But it's a it, there's a there's a there's a limited um a limited area for them to flog your extras to go with them or you know keep keep you on the sort of the ever uh, the ever ending uh, sorry the never ending merry go round of upgrades, which perhaps may count against them. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's a lot of sense in that argument. I mean, if you uh, if you've been in this game as long as as we all have, uh, it seem, seems to be upgrade after upgrade after upgrade, and that's kind of what surprised me with the with the Mackies that I had. I never felt that urge to have to go up to something else or buy another amplifier or get the latest receiver because it's got eleven channels that I'll never use. Um, I always found that. Uh, I was happy with the performance and I looked at other areas of the system to improve. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's certainly you found, um, I mean, I can remember from that there have been huge jumps in, in NAV amplifiers, certainly in, in terms of the, the quality of processing, room equalisation and things like that. I mean, I look back now to the sound of what was what was my first AV receiver and, and, and frankly, it sounded extremely humdrum Um compared to even a relatively modest um, stereo amplifier. Um, the, sp- the speakers during all that time were never re- re- never really at fault. And that, that really is down to, you know, I think the manufacturer is getting a handle on, on the quality of, uh, of sound processing with an AV process and finally dragging it, screaming and kicking up to sounding like a piece of hi-fi. But, you know, you're quite right. I can, I can well believe you didn't feel compelled to sell the speakers. Now, let's talk about uh, sound quality and overall, would you recommend them? Uh, solidly recommended, with, with the obvious caveats of you've got to want to be able to look at your your drive units all the time. Um, absolutely superb sounding little speaker. I can uh, easily recommend them. Uh, they're even without the amplifiers in the sound quality coming out of them was on on a par with any any five hundred quid passive. Um, those with bigger rooms might need to look at something else. Um, their, their output capability is prodigious for their size, but they are only a small speaker. Okay, well, uh, that's one review from Russell. We've got another one coming up a little bit later on. Uh, We'll be back in a few seconds, uh, and we're going to talk about training courses. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. So welcome back, and uh, like I said, we're going to talk about training courses. Why? Uh, Well, we've got some exciting news coming up uh, very shortly. But first of all, Mark went on his ISF Level 2 training um when was that back in january wasn't it yeah yeah that's right phil uh, it was down in reading at the end of january at the uh, dts facility it was a three-day course and the first day course was the uh, was the basics it was um it was great to have um joel silver on board who was uh, who was the main speaker there um co-founder of the isf and one of the uh, original guys to uh, push for the standards we, we all aspire to for, uh, for calibration of displays um First day was 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 just basically the history and and why we do it, um, together with you know the basics of uh, of calibration. 
second day and third day were much more hands-on we got to we got to play with uh with quite a few panasonics a, a runco display some projectors some um video pro processors radiances um video eq pro um yeah it, it, it was a, it was a good course no uh, you very much uh self-taught yourself the whole calibration thing um so uh, you're not that different to a lot of people on our forums at the moment who are buying up uh, display LTs and that kind of thing with Kalman or Chroma Pure software. Uh, so how did you find, uh, and I know you got into it and some pretty uh, deep into it because you wanted to do the, the whole review thing, but uh, coming from self-taught and then going on one of these courses, how much did that help you? It helped. I mean, it's, it's always good... I mean, as you know, I've read a lot and I've been doing a lot of research on calibration for for a couple of years. So, the, the, a lot of the stuff I was already aware of, but it's always good to uh, to pick up tips from from guys, and and, and you do pick up things on these courses. Um, also, great to play with with a few different displays. Uh, yeah, it was it was very much a worthwhile thing. Now, for for people who are maybe um, considering getting getting themselves properly trained, it is a lot of money. But at the end of the day. Um, it is another step on from DIY, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course, Phil. Um, for a start, the, the level of equipment that you use, the uh, the reference signal generators, the uh, the excellent um, meters that you use are a step up from uh, your spiders and uh, your uh, I1 lights. Um, just to see the accuracy of these things was uh, was quite an eye opener. Um, to get to use the, um, of course, I use it for the reviews, but the um, the Calvin Professional software. Um, that's such a flexible tool that most uh, that most uh, DIYers won't really ever get to use. Um, and of course, it's always good to uh, to be around people who've been doing it in the industry for uh, many many years. Do you pick up all sorts of invaluable tips? Um, yeah, all in all, a very worthwhile course. Now, Steve, the the biggest problem that um, amateur or DIY calibrators fall into is the trap that. Their graphs have to be absolutely perfect. You know, the CIE chart has to be absolutely perfect. The, the grayscale has to be perfectly flat. Uh, I guess the biggest thing that that you learn when you become a, a, a more of a professional calibrator and you do it on a daily basis uh, and certainly the experience is the main thing that you can't be taught. You have to, uh, you have to do that step yourself. But it, it's one of these things where the charts don't have to be perfect you have to know what you're looking for and and you have to make sure that the others that are there aren't visible yeah absolutely phil i mean with grayscale for example i mean you can be there for for hours getting it down to you know less than delta e's of less than one but in actual fact a delta e of less than three is pretty much indistinguishable to the human eye and if you pull up a, a you know a stair a stair step grayscale uh test pattern Unless you can see any obvious discoloration in there, you're you're, you're there. You're, it's a, it's a good solid grayscale. Uh, same goes for um uh, for the CIE chart and for for color gamut. It, you know, it, it, the most important of those of those uh, measurements is is the luminance. Um, and uh, if if that's good, then then you can probably have a bit of tolerance with the others. And these are the kind of things that you learn when you actually ha- ha- you know go on one of these courses. And uh, as um. As Mark's mentioned, you know, you have someone like Joel Silver there, you know, who's one of the leading lights of video calibration, um, actually telling you, you know, and, and showing you and describing things to you and talking about this. Suddenly it becomes very apparent, also very important on both the THX and the ISF uh, calibration courses, is it, it's it's a very hands-on experience and nothing can be experienced. You can sit in the classroom, you know, for days 
and you come away no, 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 none the wiser, really. It's until you actually get there with a meter and a display and, and a calibration software and start doing it yourself that you begin to learn these things. And and when they tell you things like, you know, that, that if you get below three, you're, you're, in, you're, you're pretty good and below two or below one, you know, absolutely perfect. You know, you realize that actually, um, you know, there is, there is a danger of becoming obsessed with getting absolutely perfectly flat grass. And in reality, you don't need to. The human eye isn't that sensitive, you know, and, and unless you're doing a direct comparison, you just won't notice it. Uh, and the same goes for things like you get taught that green, green, for example, within the visible spectrum, you know, the majority of it's made up of green. So therefore, that color has to be as close to perfect as you can get because that's the one your eye is most uh, sensitive to. Whereas yeah, blue, for example, is the smallest part of the visible spectrum, and therefore areas in blue are a lot more tolerable. So these are the kind of things that you learn that perhaps you wouldn't realize if you were uh, you know, a gifted amateur just uh, t- doing it for yourself. I guess the, the the main thing that you have to learn uh, in calibration is certainly something I've learned the hard, way, the hard way. The hard way is when to give up, when to say, right, that's it, that's as good as I'm going to get, uh, and that's, that's as good as that display is going to get. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think sometimes, yeah, it, for me, what I what I particularly learned from doing reviews for AB forums is it's given me the opportunity to uh, actually uh, calibrate a lot of different manufacturers' displays. And one of the problems I you know I find is that every manufacturer has different names for the same thing and different ways of doing it. And perhaps some CMSs have controls for luminance, color, and hue, but some only have one for hue and colour, which sometimes can be just colour or perhaps the combination of luminance and colour. And, and, and the only way you can get good at this and, and, and uh, it is to actually, as I said, get hands-on and, and to, to calibrate different displays and different manufacturers' displays. And you're right, Phil, ultimately you get to the point where you think, okay, that is as good as I could possibly get it. Uh, and, and it's learning you know, when you've reached that point and not wasting hours you know, ultimately flogging a dead horse. Yeah, another thing uh, that you you taught to really to learn is um, learn some real world material and how it should be looking on on a reference display. So you you can take the graphs away, you can take the charts away, and you can and you can look at something uh, and appreciate if if it's looking right without looking at a graph. Yeah, that's that's the most important thing I think to take from any kind of uh, calibration training, whether you're doing it DIY, whether you're going to come on one of these courses, uh, whether you take it seriously enough or not, is you have to be familiar with what a good image is and you have to have reference material and that's something that I've, I've had for years and I still go back and look at the same discs that I was using two or three years ago, Steve, and uh, you tend to build up this small library that you know that if you pull that, that disc out and one of them for me is King Kong Chapter 48, I know how that should look, I know sh- how the shadow details should look in that, I know what the colour palette is on that and that's the key to being able to look at that because never ever rely just on graphs uh, yeah absolutely right phil one of the first things you learn is that at the end of the day you know you have to use your own eyes and look at the material and what you as you say what you do is you build up a library of of material very familiar with i mean we do this with the review process we always have the same films for example i know we both use the opening chapter of sunshine because the, the, the uh, shot of the spaceship going past the camera is a great, great test for things like contrast ratio, shadow detail. Um, you know, and you have these little bits from different films, which you're incredibly familiar with, and you can put it on to a new display. You calibrate the display first, obviously. But as you say, don't just trust the graphs. You put on some material you're familiar with, and you watch it, and you'll, you know, your eye will immediately be able to tell if that looks right, given that you've, you know, experienced that same material over and over again on different displays. 
so really, um, what what we're saying here is, uh, and we don't want to discourage the guys that are doing it DIY. We want to help uh, as as much as we can, uh, and certainly, you know, within the reviews, we we try and give advice when we can. We try and say why things are a certain way, uh, and some of the pitfalls that people will fall into. I mean, one of the uh, pitfalls that I, I see people falling into all the time, uh, Mark, is with CIE charts and. Uh, they take the native uh, measurement of that CIE chart, and uh, if you're undersaturated, you can't add, suddenly add in uh, what the display is not capable of giving you. Absolutely, Phil. And, and I think the other thing that they miss from the CIE chart, it's all very well lining up the points and, and of the triangle and, and there's the secondary uh, squares in between the, the primaries, but uh, it doesn't show you the luminance. And if, if you're missing that, then you're really going really to destroy your picture. Yeah, I mean, that was an important point that, that Steve raised there, and, and I guess we can't say it enough times, uh, Steve, is that uh, luminance in terms of your colour points is is the point that uh, you have to spend the most amount of time getting right. I mean, you can have a, a slight hue error, a slight colour error. You're not really going to see that, but if your luminance is way up, then uh, all the hard work you're doing getting those points on, on in 2D on your X and Y uh, are pointless if your if your capital Y is is through the roof. Yeah, I feel that's that's quite true, uh, and I think it's a mistake that's commonly made, unfortunately, um, because of the fact that the CIE graph obviously is, in, is 2D rather than a 3D, which you would need for the luminance or the brightness of the colour itself. But it's the one thing that your eyes most most uh, sensitive to, and it's the one thing that will mess up that picture more than anything else if it's not correctly done. So, if you're a button DIY calibrator, stick at it. It's worth. Uh, learning as much as you can and uh, practicing as much as you can and if you can get a hold of uh, other displays it's the best thing you can possibly do because uh, you can get very familiar with your own display so sometimes it's worthwhile taking your kit round to your mate's house and uh, having a go on, on their TVs just uh, don't knacker them up otherwise they won't speak to you again um, but I guess also for professionals out there and uh, the budding enthusiasts that want that little bit more uh, I guess there's nothing better than to have uh, the initials THX uh, after your name, Steve, and uh, being certified as a, as a THX uh, level two calibration expert. Definitely, Phil. It's uh, you know it's it's a great course, and uh, and what I like about the course is that um, you know that it's very hands on, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, which is good because you get to try different displays and, and projectors and plasmas and LCDs. And also, in order to attain the certification, you actually have to do 10 calibrations as well, which you send in to THX and, and, and they check that they're correct. And after you've done 10, then you're awarded a THX uh, video calibrator. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile uh, qualification. And it's, no, it's not one of the things where you just go and do a one-day course, you know, maybe do a quick multiple-choice exam and that's it. You know, there is really, a, you know, a, a very real uh, calibration path there that, that that you have to achieve and attain, which which makes it worthwhile, I think, and, and and a very valid qualification in that sense. And of course, the the important thing is that once you are qualified, you you can use the THX logo. Uh, you then become a certified professional. You have the use of that logo, and this is where the difference, I think, that the major difference comes in with uh, uh, the differences between the ISF course and the THX course. And and that's in familiarity with the the terminology. The public uh, know the THX name, um, and the reason why the public know the THX name is that that 
most members of the public have bought DVDs or Blu-rays that are THX certified and that logo comes up before the film. Uh, they might know it through the Star Wars George Lucas angle where, where it originated from back in 1983. Yet when you talk to people about ISF, uh, Mark, they're not really sure what that means. No, there's not really a lot of exposure for ISF. I mean, I think they're trying to trying to build that up a little bit more now. Obviously, they get their... Uh, get their initials on some of the uh, displays that we review in the uh, calibration controls, the ISF uh, 3C controls. But I think most of the members of the public are not really going to have a clue what that means. Um, that, I think they've uh, affiliated themselves to uh, to Windows 7 through the calibration controls available there and and a couple of other things. But yeah, they're going to they're struggle to get the uh, penetration that THX does. And I guess, Steve, if you're uh, if you're a professional installer, uh, custom installer, and so on, um, you're going to value the fact that 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 THX name has a little bit more value to it. Absolutely, Phil. There, there's definitely greater brand recognition when it comes to THX compared to ISF or, in fact, any other uh, organisation in in the calibration world. THX, as you say, Phil. I, mean, I know it's not part of Lucasfilm anymore, but the association with George Lucas and with Star Wars. Uh, the fact that people see it at the beginning of DVDs and Blu-rays, um, you know, it it has very very wide brand recognition um, worldwide, and uh, and I think for anybody that's got to look good on their business card. So if uh, if you want that on your business card, or if you're just an enthusiast and uh, you fancy becoming a THX certified calibrator, well, now's your chance because uh, AV Forums are hosting the UK's first THX video calibration course which is taking place on June the 14th, 15th and 16th. It's a three-day course. Uh, The first day is Level 1, which is an introduction to calibration. You'll learn everything about the history of TV, why you calibrate and so on. And the 15th and 16th uh, are the Level 2 course, and that's the in-depth and very, very much hands-on training, uh, teaching you everything you need to know about calibration and when you leave that course at the end of the day because myself and Steve have done the course, we've witnessed it and we've uh, basically graded it highly. This is why we want to bring it to the UK. Um, You come away from the course knowing that you have the skills to then go and and calibrate. Yeah, Absolutely, Phil. I mean, as I said earlier, there's a danger sometimes with courses where particularly it's classroom-based with notebooks that... Yes, you know the, the theory, but you haven't actually calibrated anything. And, and until you have, you know, it's not the same. And like anything in life, you know, you need to do it. And and with the THX calibration course, you spend two days solidly hands-on with in, in small groups with um, with with the uh, instructors, and you'll calibrate plasmas and LCDs and and projectors. And it's in, as I said, it's very hands-on. And, and at the end of those two days, you, you will know how to calibrate a display. And then, of course, you have to go away and, and do nine more calibrations uh, yourself in order to attain the full certification, which, which again means that you actually get to utilise that skill, those skills in the real world. And as I said, from my experience, actually calibrating different manufacturers' displays is a great learning curve because, you know, as I said, everyone tends to name things differently, and there's all the little idiosyncrasies associated with displays. And only by doing it on a regular basis in different manufacturers' products do you actually get, you know, that kind of knowledge base built up. So if uh, you want to find out more about this uh, course, then the address is thx.avforums.com. Go and have a look and uh, have a read up on what the course entails. 
and uh, hopefully we'll see some of you guys or some of you listeners in June on the course. And uh, before we go away from the the whole calibration thing, Steve, uh, uh, another exciting release uh, that's come out this month, and that's Kalman 4.2. If people are not aware of what Kalman 4.2 is capable of, then uh, if you go to avforums.tv and watch the latest video on there, it's Danik Smith from Spectrical, and he takes us through a demonstration on a VT30. But basically, uh, Steve, this is Kalman's automated calibration software. It is, Phil. I mean, first off, let's just say that Calman is a fantastic piece of software in terms of for calibration. I mean, I, we use it for all of our reviews, uh, and I absolutely love it. Um, last year, they introduced a degree of automation, which which um, I was able to use with both my, my Radiance that I have at home and the Video EQ Pro that I, I reviewed, where where you could you know you could use the, the two devices in conjunction with a meter, and it would basically do some calibration on an automated basis. Um, this is a, so taking it to the next step, where in conjunction with the VT30, Panasonic's VT30, um, it literally is you, you set your sort of minimum delta E, say it's two, for example, on a grayscale, and then you press a button, and it literally will it continue doing iterations uh, until it reaches uh, a, a minimum of, of two delta E of two for each IRE um, a block, t- t- ten IRE block, and um, and calibrate the display. And and it, it literally is one t- one button calibration. Very impressive. And we had a demonstration at the Panasonic convention, which is where you filmed it for the uh, video that's on the forums. And um, I have to say that, that that you know I was very impressed with with what I saw in terms of its uh, capability. Uh, you know, obviously, ultimately, I think that you know you can't um, you can never replace uh, you know a skilled professional. Uh, who, who can get, uh, you know, who, who knows more about the video chain and can add value in other ways to, rather than just calibrating a grayscale. But in terms of uh, in terms of automated calibration, it, it is a very impressive piece of software. Steve, I guess the question that is obviously going to be asked is uh, if this Carmen 4.2 software can do automated calibration, why do you need the professional calibrator at the end of the day? Uh, uh, yeah, that's true, Phil. I mean, as impressive as this software is, I don't think there's ever going to be. Never, you're never going to completely replace a, a trained professional who can add so much more value in terms of a calibration. Not just you know calibrating a grayscale or even the the color gamma, but also you know checking every link in the video chain. Uh, you know, because obviously it's not just the projector or the TV. There's obviously there's the uh, if you're passing the signal through um, an amplifier or through a processor, or, or you know, and there's of course the source. Maybe it's the Blu-ray player. All these things need to be checked as well. So a professional adds a lot more value than just the basic calibrations. But never having said that, of course, um, very impressive software, I have to say, and and another feather in the cap for uh, for the guys at Spectrical and Karma. So uh, that's the calibration news for uh, that's happened over the last three months and quite exciting times. So don't forget that THX course, June 14th, 15th, 16th. I think we've sold it enough now, Steve, do you think? Yeah, obviously Phil and I will be there, so that doesn't make you want to buy it. I don't know what will. Well, that's probably put a lot of people off now. Uh, right, so we're going to have another quick break here and uh, when we come back, Russell's going to entertain us with his next review. You're listening, You're listening to the AV Forums podcast. So welcome back uh, to the AV Forums home cinema podcast for April and uh, Russell's now going to dazzle us with the Radiance 5.1 review. Uh, so Russell, what are they and how did they sound? Um, well, they're um, back with acoustic energy, uh, a very much more traditional package as most people will be used to in their front room, floor standards, um, some bookshelves and surrounds, matching centre and a wee subwoofer. Um, 
a nice, nicely wrapped up package, um, sort of in a slightly anonymous oak cum maple-ish cum something veneer that's, you know, you, you can choose it, it'll fit in in, a, in any sort of light woodish front room. Um, I think they've been quite canny about that one. Um, starting with the big ones at the front, the Radiance 3, it's the biggest speaker in the range. It's a true three-way, um, a dedicated treble, mid and bass drivers. Um, I suppose it is what passes for a reasonably imposing cabinet these days, although somebody like myself, a child of the 80s, still thinks it's a bit on the small side. Um, a lovely, lovely, mature-sounding speaker. Not something that will blow your socks off first time you hear it in a demo showroom. Um, it hasn't been voiced to impress with lots of boom and tiz. It's just a very smooth-sounding uh, monitor. The Radiance ones themselves, the wee bookshelf, are, are much basically just the top half of the same thing, albeit this time the... Uh, the mid-range unit is handling the bass as well. Um, very, very similar sound. Not quite the same warmth as the bigger floor standards, and that was part of the problem I had with the package. The floor standards themselves, because of their sheer physical bulk, do sound that little bit warmer than the rest. And you can tell, particularly with films, when sounds pan around the, the room, you can hear them tend to pass through the floor standards in a way that, for instance... Um, you get a much better integration with the centre and the, the smaller speakers at the front, and I suspect, therefore, the Radiance 2 floor standers, which I didn't have to try, would probably be slightly more successful as part of that surround package. So, Russell, uh, in terms of system capabilities, I mean, uh, this is very much a, a mix and match from the same kind of range, then? Um, yeah, yes, it, it is. Um, it, I... I, I I think I mentioned as much in the review. I think there would be a better match from the slightly smaller Radiance too, just because tonally, similar size drivers, cross-section of cabinet, it just it would create a slightly more seamless blend. But that said, if you're the sort of person who's probably, say, shall we say, more of a music-first person, but just wants a bit of surround sound attached for watching films with the family or whatever, it's still pretty bloody good. Um, but, you, you know, one has to be critical about these things and nitpick. Um, and that w that would be the point I picked up on that, and the fact that the subwoofer, which acoustic energy don't really take any time to disguise, is basically the same unit as used with uh, the cheaper Neo uh, version two package, which we previously reviewed. It doesn't quite have the guts and the depth to add something that the floor standards can't virtually approach by themselves. Um, uh, I think acoustic and that is a, that is a fact I know from talking to acoustic energy they are aware of and I believe they are working on although there's uh, as to whether anything is imminent I don't know. Now in in terms of mixing and matching, I, I always best practices uh, for a five point one system is to have identical cabinets across the front, uh, identical speakers across the front, uh, basically for the cohesion of the, of your sound stage. Now. Uh, my understanding of this system is that the centre speaker is one of those speakers that's been designed as a centre speaker and um, all that has the same drivers and so on as, as the front, uh, slightly different in volume and so on. Um, when used with the threes, yes. With the ones, much less so. Um, it, it, it's a two-and-a-half-way um, unit, so basically the, the second bass driver just kicks in below a point to augment the, the, the mid-bass driver. You haven't got the mid-range strung out across the entire width of the cabinet, therefore, which does actually help maintain a more even tonal balance, um, especially when you're sitting off-axis as well. I mean, in actual fact, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I, I use three identical speakers orientated identically across the front because it just sounds so unbelievably seamless. Um, you, you can barely tell whether the centre speaker has been switched on or off. It just it just it just melds into the hole but as far as these horizontal aspect speakers go and i appreciate most people have only got the room to do that 
um, it was pretty damn successful, I have to say, especially when, when partnered with the smaller speakers. So uh, overall, after uh, spending some time with these, and, and people can go and read your review at avforums.com forward slash reviews, uh, what were your uh, uh, final thoughts on this system? Um, a nice looking, very t- easy to uh, live with package that you know won't tear the ears off it after a couple of hours of listening to movies at high volumes or music for that matter. Um, again, you know, if choosing the big floor standards to drive a bigger room, just be slightly aware that you won't get the seamless blend between uh, the, the, the three different speakers that you might do if you'd chosen the slightly smaller ones. But otherwise, um, very impressed. Excellent. So that's the uh, Radiance 5.1 system. Like I say, if you want to read Russell's full review and get his full, full thoughts on that system, then head over to tvforums.com forward slash reviews. And indeed, to read any of our reviews that we're talking about this month, it's the same address. Uh, before we finish off for this month, uh, I guess we have to mention 3D projection. Uh, we did have a, a little chat about 3D at the beginning of the podcast. And one of the things that Russell said was that you need a big screen to get the effect. And is more than right with uh, with his thoughts there and we totally agree with him now we've had the chance to have a look at the sony vw90 and the jvc x3 x7 and x9 projectors and uh, i guess i gotta to come to steve with this one uh, steve you reviewed the the x3 uh size really does matter when it comes to 3d it seems it really does feel yeah absolutely um there's no question that the bigger the image, the more immersive it is. And, and that kind of is the whole point of 3D, to immerse you. Um, when you're looking at a, t- a smaller display, a TV, you're, you're kind of looking through a window. Whereas if it fills your field of view, you're, you're there, you're in that world, you know. And and when I reviewed the X3, X3, it was my first chance to really, you know, get to grips with a projector at home, a 3D projector at home. And uh, and suddenly, I, I, you know, I just found myself blown away by 3D in a way I've been utterly apathetic before that. But suddenly, I found myself, you know, really enjoying 3D movies. And uh, I picked up a few uh, a few films after that, um, Resident Evil Afterlife, yeah, yeah, which would have been, you know, a mediocre movie in 2D, but was a fantastic experience in 3D. Really enjoyable, really uh, clever use of of, three, of, the, of the third dimension in terms of, you know, the effects and, and the way the film was shot. It was actually shot with 3D cameras. I think that's an important point that people need to be aware of. Um, you, you know, you want to, if you're going to buy 3D movies and you're going to get into 3D, you really want to watch movies that are actually shot in 3D, like Avatar or um, uh, Resident Evil Afterlife. Saw 3D that was shot in 3D, or uh, animated movies where the conversion into 3D is, is done properly. What I'm wary of are uh, 2D movies, 2D live action movies that are converted into 3D because you know you can't fool the eye. You see 3D you know, all the time, uh, and um, you know you can tell immediately that it's not real 3D. It's, it's been converted, um, so people need to be wary of that. But with a with a good 3D movie, a, a fantastic experience. And so, uh, as Russell said, and as you just mentioned, you know, size does matter. And uh, when it comes to 3D, you can't beat uh, projection at home, in my opinion. Now, quick- well, you, you chaps have been talking about 3D and, and, and the various screens and whatnot. Do you... Uh, virtually all of the titles you've mentioned some way have been animated, big-budget, action flicks. Does it have a place when you're just sitting down with a wife and watching a rom-com or something, you know, or something a little bit lower-key, shall we say? There's no reason why it couldn't, Russell. Just that no one's bothered to make it. I mean, I, I think obviously big budget blockbusters uh, have lent themselves more to 3D 
to date. But but there's no reason why you couldn't make a drama in 3D. I mean, the actual dimension, the added dimensionality, does add to the the you know the experience. Um, for example, a good example I think would be snow. If you if you, you know, if see where there's snow falling, um, yeah. you know that. that 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 can be really enhanced by the, by, by 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 watching it in 3D, um, so you can have you know an emotional dra- drama and someone's talking to each other. Just the added depth, suddenly your eyes drawn into the image more. Uh, I mean, you know, it is more than just a gimmick when done correctly. And, and I think if you want to, if you watch Avatar in 3D, because you know, it was designed for 3D, Cameron really knows what he's doing. It's an absolute masterclass in, in shooting in 3D. Um, and, and when you watch it in 3D, you're absolutely, I mean, I must confess, when I first saw it, I don't think I quite appreciated it at the cinema. I think because I was a bit uncomfortable and the seats were kind of small. And I, you know, but at home, watching it you know, in the comfort of my own home, uh, I was absolutely gobsmacked by, by, the, three, by the 3D. So uh, it's very much um, content um, um, dependent, I suspect. For example, yeah, I mean, the, the reason I ask is back at the top of the hour, you, you, one of you referred to, I think it was Phil said that, uh, that you know, as one of the manufacturers had admitted that basically it wasn't selling that well. And I'm wondering if this is because, you know, when you look at it, the actual program material that's out there is very much, let's be honest, male orientated. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that, Russell, to be honest. I mean, first of all... You're not selling it to really half the population, are you? No, I mean, there isn't... A, a, there isn't much content. What content there is, as you point out, is, is particularly on the Blu-ray side, is largely male-orientated. And on the... The, the other major source of content is, is, is Sky 3D, uh, which, once again, it, is a lot of it's sport, which, again, is kind of male-orientated. Um and there's no question that that in the general public, obviously here on AV forums and, and amongst enthusiasts, it's, it's a big talking subject. And it was certainly obviously a big subject at CES. But I, I tend to find if I talk to friends and family, you know, who aren't AV enthusiasts, they're either completely unaware of its existence, other than at the movies, possibly, um, or generally just not interested. As soon as you tell, you have to t- tell them that you have to wear glasses, they just lose interest immediately. Um, it was interesting. I think it's partly because when you go to the movies, uh, you know, it's an event you're going out to the cinema, you don't mind wearing glasses for, for a big movie. Um, but if you're just watching TV at home, no one's interested really in, in wearing glasses for, to watch you know, ordinary TV. And that's another reason why I think projectors are so great for 3D. Because again, when you're watching a movie in, in your home cinema on a, on a projector screen, it's an event. You know, you stop, you know, you, you go in the home cinema, you put on the movie, you put on your glasses, you don't mind. But with a, with a 42-inch uh, plasma in your, in, or LCD in, in your lounge, do you want to be wearing glasses all the time? Absolutely not. Probably not and I no. think that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of you know, disinterest amongst the general public. I mean, I, I don't think 3D uh, in terms of, of a format is going to disappear anytime soon. Um, and you mentioned the fact, uh, Steve, back at the beginning of the podcast that it's going to come onto TVs stealthily. It, it's going to be one of those features that, you know, come 2014, 2015, when you go out and buy a TV, it's going to be 3D ready. Uh, you're going to have to buy the glasses, obviously, and so on. Um, but you're going to have that option on the TV, and it's going to give them time to, to get the content up to speed. But then again, I'm looking at films coming out this summer, and there's not a lot there that's actually been filmed in 3D. No, you, you're dead right, Phil. I was, I was looking at that funny enough today, um, what's coming out. And, you know, I know they're shooting The Hobbit in, with 3D cameras. Um, but a lot of the other big releases this year, particularly like, for example, Harry Potter Part 8, well, well Deathly Hallows Part 2, that's a 2D to 3D conversion. Uh, Thor, 2D to 3D conversion. 
Clash of the Titans too, another one. Well, don't don't get started on Clash of the Titans. There's the uh, Captain America. Um, that, that's a 2D, 3D conversion. They're almost all 2D to 3D conversions. And in my experience to date of 2D, 3D conversions, it is, you know, your eye can't be tricked. You, you look at 3D since the day you were born, unless you've only got one eye. And, and you know, so you know what 3D looks like because you, you see it all the time in the real world. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to fool the eye into thinking you're seeing a genuine three-dimensional image by doing a conversion. I just don't see how you can do it. Uh, and, you know, I noticed that um, in, in February of next year, Lucas is releasing uh, The Phantom Menace in, uh, in 3D. Um, and, and they're talking about spending a year doing the conversion, which makes you realise how rushed you know, six weeks on Patch the Titans was in terms of uh, trying to create anything that looked realistic. But um, I, yeah, I, I'm slightly concerned that there's not enough genuine 3D content coming out. In the moment, the only films I know of, know of that are coming out that are shot with 3D cameras are um, there's a three, the three Musketeers, or perhaps there's a 3D Musketeers, that, um, that's coming out <laughs> quite soon. That uh, that was shot with 3D cameras. Um, that's by Paul W. S. Anderson, the guy that does the uh, did Resident Evil Afterlife. So I'm actually quite excited about that because I thought he used 3D quite imaginatively in in, in Resident Evil. Um, and there's some smaller budget movies. There was Drive Angry, which came out quite recently with Nicolas Cage and uh, Sanctum, which was produced by James Cameron. Um, that they, they were shot with 3D cameras. But there's not an awful lot of genuine 3D material that seems to be on the horizon, which is a bit of a concern in terms of having quality content. And let's be honest, the prospect of Jar Jar Binks in 3D is positively mouth-watering. <laughs> <laughs> Someone commented that, you know, they're spending a lot of time and care and effort to do the 3D to 2D to 3D conversion. And someone else said, well, they didn't spend any time or care and effort making the film in the first place, so why bother now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, unfortunately... Uh, we've run out of time this month for the podcast. Uh, so I uh, I have to move things on, sadly, lads. But we will be back again next month. One of the hot subjects we will be covering next month is IPTV and uh, the new services that are coming online as we speak, as the new TVs start to hit the market. And hopefully we will have had some of those new TVs in for review. Uh, I know that we have the ST30, the G30 and the VT30 on the way from Panasonic. Uh, We're also looking at some of the Samsungs and some of the new Sonys, hopefully very soon. Uh, So we should have quite a roundup for you. And uh, Russell, what are we looking at next month in terms of speakers? Uh, Well, with any luck, we should have a a bit of progress on the new KEF um, Q700 package and possibly the T-Series as well. And there's one or two other things possibly in the pipeline, which have uh, yet to have a date put against them. I think one of them might be the Paradigm uh, Millennium um, compact sub sat package um, and when I mean compact sub I mean a sub that's about four inches wide um, quite a remarkable little piece of technology if we can lay our hands on that uh, and we've been told we can have it um, it would be very nice to try that indeed so uh, until our next podcast uh, keep an eye on avforums.com forward slash reviews for all the latest hardware reviews from the team here and I just have to thank them so thanks Russell, Steve and Mark Cheers Phil. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. And like I say, we'll be back again next month. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.